Yo, Mike, what it is, yo? I'm Kylie McDaniel of Fangraphs.com, and on the other line, my unindicted co-conspirator, Eric Longenhagen. Hello. Yes, it's true. Although I'm looking true. forward to the indictment. <laughs> that's all we have to look forward to now is your indictment. It'll be the most, yeah, it'll be the most prestigious thing that's ever happened to me, an indictment. Big news for Fangraphs. Quickly, we'll throw out our plugs. You can find us on uh, Twitter at FG underscore prospects. You can email us, prospects at Fangraphs.com. We do see these emails. And our all of our prospect content is at Fangraphs.com slash prospects. Since the last podcast, we've basically done a bunch of, uh, I guess you call them the off-season prospect lists for the major league organizations. We both had a chat. There's been a bunch of trades. Uh, by the time this goes up, there'll probably be a couple more of all of those things. So keep your eyes on that, and I guess Twitter and this and chats, and that pretty much covers all of our thoughts. So uh, any, anything else to add, Eric? No, I don't think so. Um, Excellent. We're I keeping it tight. <laughs> I haven't monetized the rest of my interests yet, although I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Monetization is big. So far, it's uh, step one, steal underpants, step three, profit, and we're working on step two. Yeah, uh, we're just Twitch stream us stealing underpants. Yeah, well, maybe That's... Twitch is step two. Yeah, we'll get there. Um, one quick thing I want to touch on, it's not a full full on topic, um, but uh, MLB uh, struck a deal with MGM uh, for a, v- a variety of things. Uh, they get uh, exclusive enhanced stats, which I think is code for StatCast, and I think other people had that same reading. Uh, and it's yeah. sort of the official gambling sponsor of Major League Baseball. NBA and NHL all, already have one. Uh, a deal with MGM, so I guess that's sort of the preferred partner of the leagues, and MGM gets to promote all of their sort of platforms on MLB platforms, um, and in like uh, multiple articles it, it pointed out, and I think there were comments from the MGM uh, president of their whole situation that uh, baseball is uniquely suited for this, given that there's like a break in between every discrete play, yeah. and I had pointed out that I think the the upside of, you know, instead of like betting like a, a physical paper dollar with your buddy, if the ball is going to end up on the mound or if the next pitch is going to be a ball or strike or, or whatever, you can just do it through your phone. And obviously baseball would get, you know, some cut of that whole thing. Um, it's, and then, you know, you can have props on StatCast stuff. Like essentially they will be monetizing the area that we have expertise in. So it all sounds very interesting for us. That's about all I had to say. Uh, did you have any other, you know, smaller thoughts on this whole gambling thing? I'm sure we'll come back to this later when no. more news comes out. That's kind of it. I I guess, yeah, the thing that I'm curious about is what is Las Vegas going to do with spin rates and exit velocities and the like? Um, and is it going to be related to season-long prop bets that type stuff or, as you mentioned, in-game uh, transactions? I do think that that's – there are already gambling apps um, for your phone that have sports books. And so just doing it in real time um, – in baseball, especially is to like the pace of the game has been alluded to already several times in discussion of this by parties involved. Um, but yeah, like we have win probabilities that update in real time on fan graphs. If those are just converted into odds, um, then they can update in real time during a game and you could bet on who's going to win the game at various points of the game. And gambling is like a complex thing to talk about that we're never going to do justice uh on an entire if we dedicated an entire episode to it um but yeah i i would imagine that there are there's ample opportunities for mlb and mgm to take advantage of people (laughs) and and make a lot of money i believe they call that Um, synergy and leveraging their unique abilities i think that's that's what they call it the ease of access on your phone is so 
dangerous. Like, just think about the stories you've read about, like microtransactions on um, Pokemon Go, or like the Kim Kardashian game that made a ton of money uh, because of microtransactions. Um, and just think about attaching that type of human impulse to the dopamine rush of winning at gambling. And like, who knows what could come of this? Well, and the one other um, thing I was going to add is I think the the end game stuff is like that's something that's been new to game. I, I guess you could probably guess that I follow gambling a little more closely than Eric does. Not a gambler, yeah. but it, the whole thing just sort of interests me. Yeah, actually, I may I may place the first bet of my entire life at the winter meetings. I, I may be joined by David Appleman in doing that. But I, I had read something where they were saying that the in game betting with football is sometimes a little wonky. Because especially if you're doing it like you know off of TV, there's like a bunch of different delays, and with teams that run really you know sped up offenses, the delay might be longer than the actual play is. Where people in the stadium have an advantage if they sort of time it so that people you know sitting at home on the, watching it on TV are supposed to do it. Um, because obviously, like the win probability and will this play be you know run or a pass or you know whatever all the little options are are, are pretty dynamic. Whereas in baseball, it's obviously like. I guess a similar amount of time, like, you know, 15, 20 seconds or whatever in between pitches, but they can obviously like slightly tweak those odds. I think a little more easily to just be like, Oh, ball in play, ball, not in play, ball, strike, curveball, fastball, like whatever. Um, but yeah, then if, if they do something that, um, detailed, then could somebody sitting in center field with binoculars like guess the pitch based off the catcher's you know signs like because I know like for instance in a lot of these new stadiums they have like really like I remember when they were talking about the Braves new stadium they said every single person in the stadium could be on FaceTime on the stadium Wi-Fi and it would still work and it would you know you could do FaceTime and so if you do that in combination with something like this um, you don't have to worry about the lag when everyone's in the stadium so everyone's seeing the same thing at the same time but then what if you know somebody that's getting paid 50 grand that's doing advanced scouting, you know, can see, you know, knows the signs of the other team because they have some expertise and they're able to, you know, there's, there's a bunch of little things in the um, integrity area that have to be taken care of. I would also say that the general Fangraphs fan that I think probably has a lot of opinions and probably is not a better, if it then becomes, you know, super legal and you can claim it on your taxes and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And there's an app and whenever you're watching TV, you can just, you know, bet 20 bucks while you're watching the game, like no big, big problem. I think there's a lot of money to be made there from people that aren't, don't see themselves as betters, but see themselves as informed fans and would like to just sort of, you know, sort of dabble and not even a big amount of money, but it's sort of like how you've seen in some political contributions, you know, one side has a bunch of billionaires and then one side has a bunch of people giving 20 bucks and sometimes the 20 bucks group can end up being more money. So I think I think that's what Vegas is going for. And I think like they were saying that baseball is uniquely suited for that, given that it's sort of a a passive in-person experience that just goes on, you know, for three hours and goes on for half the year. And there's just games left and right. Like there's like a lot of bulk of stuff you can you can do stuff with. I agree. It's definitely an opportunity for people with a greater than average understanding of baseball to like maybe make some real money at home and there's also things that aren't incorporated into our you know live odds where if you know that craig kimbrell is coming in or the last pitcher on the roster is the one coming in from the bullpen that obviously is something you can learn and you know bet on or against it while the odds wouldn't reflect that or if there's you know pinch hitter or you know you know the pitcher's about to go out because he just got hit with a line drive like that's not going to be in the odds so i wonder if if that will be like the you know just people that pay attention that like understand you know inefficient markets and whatnot could just do that or if there will be a human you making slight adjustments like when a, they're about to make a pitching change they take it off the board or whatever i don't know those are just specific things i'm interested in but now we will go into topic one which is all the offseason big league stuff that has been happening which uh i would say includes but is not limited to 
what are the Mets doing? What are the Mariners doing? Uh, various free agent signings yeah. like Donaldson with the Braves, Richards with the Padres, what are the Yankees and the Dodgers going to do? And then sort of the Seattle teardown in each of those discrete three trades in general. So Eric, where would you like to start? With the Seattle stuff. Yeah, who we talked um, we touched on last week for totally different reasons. Yeah, very different. Um, yeah, you know, uh, the thing that I touched on when I wrote about the Cano return, uh, which they're like hugely different opinions about this deal in baseball. I don't know who you've talked to about this, um, but even just publicly too, like there are very disparate op- opinions. There are people in baseball who think that uh, the Mets are being fleeced just because Cano's contract is so in the red for for those folks, and then uh, you know there are others who think it's totally unacceptable to do uh, what Seattle is doing, and um, that they have like a responsibility to field a competitive team, that they're taking a gigantic step away from that, um, and also saving a ton of money in the process. The thing that strikes me about what Seattle is doing is the shape of their farm system is going to change so drastically and already has uh, that based on the asset value stuff that like Craig worked on, uh, will they be having an increase unlike any other franchises increase in like a single off season during a rebuild? They've already gone from like the bottom of the heap in our end of 2018 farm system asset value rankings like into the middle of the pack and that's before like we're sitting here in the gene segura trade isn't totally done and announced yet and they might move ryan healy and who knows if they'll take carlos santana from philly and like spin him around so rumors are the time um, of seager also yeah i feel like they'd be selling low on seager if they moved and that's someone who i'd rather wait until july and I hope there's some bounce back and then move him. Uh, but I do think Healy is a possibility to go. Um, I think he's more likely than to, to go than uh, Carlos Santana is. Uh, cause just cause I think Santana is versatile enough that he'll play there. Like they, I don't know if they're totally sure what pieces are going to be left uh, on the big league team. Um, and Santana could fit in a bunch of different of those spots. And then Hanniger is the one where I think the return would be massive. Uh, because I think he's for real, and um, he's cost controlled, and he's still only—I mean, he's 27, but he hasn't like he's grown into new skill just in the last like two and a half years. Yeah, he seems like the biggest win of Jerry's era, where he basically bought low on a guy, he immediately turned into a huge asset, and he's still got a lot of control left. And I guess the right. the question would be, given what they're doing, it seems like they're trying to dump anybody with guaranteed money, which Haniger doesn't have. And anybody that won't be on the team in 2020, 2021, when they think they're going to be good, which is right when Hanniger is going to be expiring. I think he would be, what, after 21 or 22? So he'd basically be the guy that's on a year or two to go when they're good. Um, you know, maybe maybe two or three if, if they do it really quickly. So I would, I would get the impression that since, you know, I'm sure Jerry is proud of that trade and really likes the player and would like oh, to yeah. think that they're going to be good in less than four years. And so this guy will be there. And we'll just have him as like the cornerstone throughout this whole thing, you know, along with, you know, D Gordon and a couple other guys. Um, and so, so I'd be inclined to think they'll keep him, but um, yeah, it's not like any of us have guessed that all of these, <laughs> like when the report came from passing that they might consider a teardown and Jerry said, Oh no, we're not. And I'm like, all right, it's probably somewhere between those two. There's probably going to be a couple guys traded, like sort of a power rebuild, like that kind of thing. And then it, they've always gone a little further than, than that so far. Um, so yeah, predicting what direction they're going to go is, is tough. I would say on the, on the Mets deal, it was, it was interesting because 
originally the sort of math, and I know uh, Craig had written about this a little bit, and I think we had either speculated or there might have been another article about it before the deal was done that Cano was worth, you know, somewhere around 80 million. I think some people thought it was less than that, but, you know, call it 75 or, or whatever as like a round number. And then when you include Swarzak and Bruce's deals, they're actually, you know, sort of net paying him less than that. So you could argue that with all the all the pay downs with the 20 mil and then the two bad contracts, that Cano basically got a market rate or pretty close to it to where he's basically a net neutral. And I think the initial reviews of the deal were on him being a net negative. And so then it would just be two and a half prospects essentially for Diaz, which I think is like fair. Like it's, it's sort of like the Paxton deal where it was like on the low end of fair. I think, I think they could have gotten a little more if they were just dealing Diaz. And I think the asset value suggests it was like a little bit light, like maybe 10 mil light, like enough that it's within the margin of error, uh, but not a lot. So it was, it's sort of, it's a little puzzling in a general sense that, you know, say AJ Preller went for it and then now gets to rebuild all in the same contract and then got an extension. And then Jerry gets to go for it sell out the whole farm system and go for it and it doesn't really work and it looks like it might be ugly if they keep going for it and so now he's going to sell it off and gets to keep doing it and got an extension like that that is not how things normally go and i've uh compared yeah. compared notes with some executives while doing these lists and they're like yeah no that's you're right that that's unusual like it's usually get to pivot multiple times and in, in uh in one regime so again it's it's hard to guess exactly what's going to happen but they've also what made you know two major trades right now uh about to be three and they've added you know, we'll call Sheffield a high 50, Dunn a low 50, and then Kalenic yeah. a middle 50. They basically added three 50s, and those are not, especially these days with how teams are valuing players and taking guys off the table and things like that, it's, like, not easy to do. And, like, the next best guy they got is, like, a guy that could very easily be a 45 or 50 next year in the big leagues. And Eric Swanson, that we have as 40-plus, hedging a bit, but he, he could easily be of the quality of those guys. Um, and Dom Thompson-Williams is also another guy that, you know, is sort of on the trend up. We're not sure exactly where he'll land, but he's also in that sort of short-term, um, you know, year-to-two big league value type. Right, like there's there's power there that we didn't think was there, and yeah, stuff might come late, and yeah. And it sure, it sure uh, seems like they're they're going for that sort of power rebuild um, along the lines of what the, we'll say, the more progressive teams have done that have torn down as opposed to what Atlanta, San Diego, Kansas City did when they tore down. It was we need multiple three, four, top five picks We'll load it up the system and then we'll go all at once. And the progressive teams, you know, like the Yankees basically made two trades as a rebuild. They, they right. tend to do it a little bit differently. It doesn't always work or that one's better than the other, obviously, um, since the Royals and the Braves ones both do appear to have worked. And it seems like the Padres on the way to theirs working. Maybe that's why some of these returns seem a ta- like a shade light because the Mariners are kind of boxed into this. Uh, time frame like you need to find a fit now where, where prospects you're getting prospects back that are on a two or three year timeline because if that's what you promised ownership you're going to do you're going to compete within that timeline then you can't uh, target even guys that you like in um, rookie ball who are going to take four or five years to develop so and teams that are buying your big league asset aren't necessarily going to want to give away guys that are close to the majors because they might want that guy too right. which is so, why I think that Jared Kalenic was like sort of the headliner of the Cano deal as a guy that's far away because the Mets are also trying to contend like that was the exact problem they were dealing with yeah what do you think do you think the Mets are closer to I guess I suppose they are closer to doing that now than they were at the beginning of this offseason and then it's just I'm curious as to why there's and I do think that there's there's definitely smoke around the situation I do think there's some fire about uh, Sundergaard and the Padres. I think if the Mariners are the magician's assistant that are sort of have our eye right now, and what who's being active in the background, I still think it's the Mets in other areas and the Padres, um, Braves, 
Uh, and I still think Cleveland is uh, thinking about moving some of their pitching. But like, what do you think about this whole Mets situation? Because this is kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's definitely um, – so I, my interpretation when Brody came in is this guy's no experience in the front office. Uh, he may be uh, hesitant to make a huge – uh, impact right away, make a bunch of splashy hires, have a bunch of you know claims from all over baseball and most loudly from Scott Boris about conflicts because the biggest decisions were about players that used to be his clients that he has a bunch of inside information about that you know Cheryl's written about is you know in sort of a dubious area where you don't feel so great about it. Um, and I would think if I was in his situation, I would want to you know have like a quieter off season, kind of hold pat, establish processes and things in the front office, get to know the players that I have. You know, make a couple moves here and there, so it doesn't seem like I'm doing nothing. And then in season, when stuff starts happening, you can kind of react and be like, "Okay, it looks like we are or are not contending. This guy, these guys are improving or not. Here's a hole. Let's address it." Like you, you kind of approach it that way. And I get the impression that's how uh, Baltimore and San Francisco's uh, new GMs will probably approach those situations. And I think all three of them, the personnel, sort of suggested that approach. It appears Brody is not going to do that. <laughs> so he immediately uh, traded for the guy with the biggest contract he's ever negotiated, which is, you know, says something. And there are, you know, heavy rumors, obviously, that Sundergaard will get traded now um, after it seemed like uh, they said they were wanting to compete and they wanted to keep DeGrom and Sundergaard. And it seems like somewhere between Brody knows stuff about Sundergaard that other people don't know that makes him want to trade him, or he wants to extend DeGrom and he can't afford to extend DeGrom and Sundergaard, so why not trade him now and get maximum value and then backfill with a free agent that'll give you comp. You know, if you get Nate Eovaldi as a two-and-a-half win guy, you lose Sundergaard and he's projected as a three-and-a-half win guy, you're going to get two or three good prospects and basically be, you know, basically be paying for prospects and lose one win this year. Um, and gain flexibility and get to pick your players. Um, so you can see the appeal of that, but you can also see where people would be very skeptical that he's making those specific decisions. Um, trading for one client, trying to extend another, and then trying to trade a third one, it certainly seems to suggest that there's something he doesn't like, even if there is nothing you know, nefarious going on. Right, even if it just makes logical sense. It seems like that division is the one uh, that could really go any like in any number of directions over the next two years. Well, the Mets also have like a glut in the infield that I'm curious how they'll deal with because you obviously have Todd Frazier making some money, Ahmad Rosario as a former top prospect. You've got Cano at second, and then you have Jeff McNeil as slash your... first. Yeah, slash first. And you also have Alonzo and Smith currently at first. You'd think probably right. not slash first because they were going to, I guess, platoon those guys, which is not the best thing to do. But they also cleared out Jay Bruce, so it's just those two. And then you have McNeil as your like super utility guy. But what if like all those guys hit? Then you have two too many guys, and then the outfield. I guess if Conforto and, and Nemo work, you then are missing an outfielder. Um, and you can't really put S- Smith or Alonzo out there, so then I guess you could run McNeil out there. And mm. like, there's, not a, there's not like a clear team that has we been... We put Smith out there last year. Um, it doesn't but seem I like do a think good he's, idea. He's, he's, I agree, and he seems like the, the logical name that needs like a change of scenery anyway. Yeah. And there are teams that still like him. Um, well, and yeah, I think even a team like though, Seattle that you know, would... You know, basically they're doing a quick rebuild. That's the kind of guy that they would take a chance on for you know a year or two and see if he can establish in value and be a guy that's a core for their team going forward, or if he's just an extra guy. Like is he Matt well, Olson or Matt Dominguez? He's he's probably one of those guys, and yeah. And Seattle could spend a year or two and not a ton of money or assets and kind of figure out what he is while they're not presumably not contending. Um, and then obviously there's all this pitching that the the Mets have with Degrom, Syndergaard, Mats, Wheeler. Um, Vargas, another former Brody client, um, and you got some guys close to the big leagues and some inventory guys who would seem like there's going to be something going on there, and it seems like the deal... I mean, I would guess the remaining deals would be trade Dom Smith, 
for you know a a close to the big leagues asset, uh, trade center guard for multiple close to the big leagues assets, sign a starting pitcher, and then I don't know maybe sign a reliever. Like I, I'm not sure that that's notably different than the team that they had last year that was a little unlucky. I think it's probably not a contender. Like probably around five. I mean, I'm not looking at like the projections or anything, but it's probably around 500. But I guess it's competitive enough that you've sort of you have more of a long-term view now that DeGrom's our guy and we got some, some young guys running around and we're kind of figuring stuff out, but we're competing. I, I don't know. Do you, do you think that's where it lands or what it looks like they're kind of going for? I think so. Like I said, I think that there's enough unknown about that division in general that anyone could kind of take a look at things except for probably Miami yeah. and say, uh, you know, I think we have a reasonable shot at this thing next year. And I think everyone's operating in, in, that fashion right now, you know, even Washington acquiring Jan Gomes is huge. Like, uh, Kurt Suzuki and Jan Gomes as a catching tandem is like among the best in, in baseball. And you got two guys in their, uh, early thirties. I think Suzuki's 35 and Gomes is 31 or 32, uh, that can share time for the next two years while they're both under contract. Like the two of them combined the next couple of years are going to make like 16, um, million annually. I think Suzuki's on like, like three a year for the next two years. Uh, and Gomes has this is his last year, and then he's got like a ten million dollar team option uh, next year. Like that's big, and they're going to be able to backfill even if Harper leaves, um, because Rob- Victor Robles is ready and he's really good, and obviously Juan Soto is very good. Um, Adam Eaton is at least an excellent platoon corner guy, like the larger half of a platoon um, who could probably use a-, a partner in in the corner. Maybe that's Michael Taylor. Um, just to keep Eaton's legs healthy, but like that's still a very talented team too. Um, and I think I, that, who, that, I think that their first moves being getting a catching tandem together, which is not important if you're not competing, and getting bullpen pieces seems like they're going to spend all that Harper money. I mean, there was I don't remember if it was Rosenthal or just stuff that I had heard from from people around the game that they think that Rizzo is going to go spend all the money that came off the books. And then at the end of Harper's still there, go to the owner and say, hey, can we get him on you know, some five-year deal with a one-year opt-out or even just like a one-year deal or whatever and bring him back? But I already got to spend all my money. So if he says no, I'm not losing anything. And I, and I didn't sit there waiting for him and you know, everyone went off the market, which it seems like what they're going to do. And obviously it seems like Philly's in the middle of completely remaking their roster while the Mets are doing stuff. And obviously you can talk about the Braves doing a bunch of stuff. Like, that, that, like you're saying, it's a pretty interesting division where I'm not sure any team's going to project for 90 wins. I'm sure one of them probably will win 90 games. Um, but that could that could go a lot of different directions. Who else has made some trades? Cleveland has done a bunch of different things, like a lot of small things. Um, they lost Michael Brantley and Lonnie Chisenhall in free agency and definitely needed to do something about their outfield situation. Um, and so they've just acquired a bunch of pieces to platoon with one another. They got Jordan Luplo from Pittsburgh, who's a righty uh, bat with power. Um Back at the trade deadline, they got Oscar Mercado from St. Louis in a swap of minor leaguers. He's a right-handed hitting, like can play all three outfield positions, uh, near-ready guy as well. And then they have Leonis Martin and uh, Bradley Zimmer hitting from the left side, and they can each play all three outfield positions. Greg Allen, Kipnis. Yeah, there's a lot of bodies out there. Right, yeah, like Kipnis. Kipnis is probably his one year uh, left, and then I think like his $17 million team option after that that I don't think will get picked up given the way his numbers have uh, declined. Um, you've also definitely got Yandy Diaz and, uh, and you Chang right. also in the mix in the infield along with Lindor and Ramirez. Yeah. And, and they're better than he is defensively. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they've, they've spun a lot of their really young low level depth around, uh, for guys who can help p- 
play some sort of lesser role on the big league roster right now. Um, obviously, they moved Jan Gomes. And, uh, and now, Mejia. They moved, moved out two Yeah, catchers. they've moved Francisco Mejia and Jan Gomes in the last uh, six months. So they've got Eric Haas, uh, the big power hitting, what is he, 26 now? Yeah, big uh, power hitting something. Something, yeah. Like it's an Evan Gaddis type of thing where he really can't catch, but he has huge power. Um, and then, then Roberto yeah, Perez was an incredible defensive catcher. Yeah, it's interesting because they, like we're saying, it's almost like what you're saying about Toronto, where they're collecting a bunch of 45s and 50s and almost kind of throwing right. it against the wall and seeing if one of these guys turns into a 55. And if they don't, then do you, I mean, it seems like the speculation is that they'll take one of these pitchers, like, you know, Bowers said he's going to go year to year and they're trying to extend Carrasco. Kluber seems like he's on the decline. Do you try to sell on him now before something goes wrong? And I, so still I think. still so good, though. Yeah, but like Rosenthal today suggested, like, hey, what about Kluber to the Dodgers uh, in a package for Verdugo and one of those catchers? Um, where they can fill two right. really important spots, still have a really good rotation with some depth to it, with you know Bieber and some of these and Salazar and these guys behind them, McKenzie. Like they still probably still have more than five good opening day starters at that point, and the Dodgers are basically taking their depth at every position and turning it into one more sort of top of the heap guy, um, because they can't have nine starting pitchers on opening day again and just throw guys in the bullpen into AAA. Like eventually, these guys run out of options, or you know Oxwood doesn't want to start in the bullpen, or or whatever it is. Like that that seemed to be a unique two unique situations that could run together. Um, but yeah, you, you you wonder how these teams specific, because if it turns out that makes perfect sense, but for whatever reason, one of the teams doesn't want to do it, then how do, how do the Indians with no money get a little more um, high-level talent into the lineup without selling out their all of their pitching depth? And it's really, it sort of comes down to execution at that point, because I think everybody sees the same thing they see. Yeah. Um, and what you're talking about with teams buying like near-ready 45s and, 50s um who are still prospects the team that has that kind of depth at catcher and uh also in the outfield as well as st louis so yeah i think there are fits out there where it's like you know the the indians can uh add to the big league team for next year even though they're not adding guys who are big leaguers yet if that makes sense yeah uh i feel like they'd rather move bauer but um he makes I can't the most imagine sense. like did you imagine the Dodgers being like, sure, we'll trade for Trevor Bauer, even though he talks shit at like, you know, Clayton Kershaw and whatever on Twitter? Like, I feel like he's the guy that you don't like if he's not on your team, and then if he's on your team, he does what he's supposed to. Like, I don't think he like starts fights with his own teammates for no reason. Like, it seems it seems like he at right. least has maybe not foresight or like uh, wisdom, but he seems to know how to like keep a decent situation going. Sure, the Draymond Green type. Yeah, they, yeah, they always talk about it in hockey, like the the enforcer type that like yeah. every team hates, but your your fans love him. I'm not sure that Cleveland fans love Bauer, but I'm sure they appreciate his like four one season or whatever he did this year. Uh, it also seems like the Yankees are an interesting spot. Obviously, they already traded for Paxton. They have Severino and Tanaka. They re-signed Sabathia, so they probably it sounds like Sonny Gray's headed out the door. So they might need another starter or two. They also have Loy Sega, Chance Adams. You know. Uh, I don't know which count Albert Abreu as. You've got some some depth hanging around. Obviously, the bullpens are still very good. There were rumors they were talking about tra- swapping Gary Sanchez for JT Romuto. That whole market has slowed down. It sounds like Washington and Atlanta both made uh, signings uh, in the air in those holes where Romuto would have gone. So Houston seems like the most logical fit. The Yankees seem like a bit of a long shot that they would trade Sanchez for him. Um, so I guess that Real Muto market's going to slow down a little bit. Everybody else figures out what they want. But obviously the Yankees have to deal with Didi Gregorius being injured. But then you can shift Torres over. But then you got Andy Hart's defense. But then who's going to play second base when you move Torres over? Is Luke Voigt for real? Is Greg Bird going to step up? Um, you got Aaron Hicks. It sounds like they might want to try to extend him. How do they sell Ellsbury's money to somebody else to maybe take on another bad contract? And 
Um, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. I'm not sure what their moves are going to be. There's like a lot of little issues to deal with that uh, it seems like Cashman's been pretty good recently, like dealing with these little issues and yeah. ending up with a good team, even though it doesn't seem like... It's not as clear, I think, as L.A. or Cleveland, where it's like, oh, they need to move talent from this area to that area, and they'll be a little more well-balanced. The Ellsbury contract is interesting to me because there are some teams with clear needs in center field. Um, like the Diamondbacks need a center fielder. They seem There's enough talent on that roster that they can be competitive next year. Um and even if they trade Goldschmidt, if they just move Jake Lamb to first, it's like what you mentioned before with like the drop off from Sundergaard to a free agent like Aovaldi. Realistically, is pr- it's probably like a win, good Sundergaard year. Maybe it's a couple more than that. And it might only cost about ten million dollars to lose that win, so and then get a bunch of prospects. So you like you could see that as a net positive in the short term. But you could see how the Diamondbacks might be able to like move Goldschmidt uh, or not. But if they do like have Jake Lamb at first and then uh, Eduardo Escobar at third base and Ketel Marte somewhere on the middle infield uh, or in center field. And then like his versatility enables them to find various ways to patch holes up the middle. Uh, They need catching help too. Um, But like, they're just okay. Sort of everywhere uh, up the middle. Uh, But um, Ellsbury for Zach Granke, like those are two uh, talented guys who are, I guess Ellsbury's declining, but um, who like they have monster contracts where like swapping them makes sense for both teams uh, on the field in some way, and also the money you know, like helps make the money a little closer. There's not as much of a of a chasm there for dealing someone like Granky or or Ellsbury to someone where there's not like a, a huge need. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of think that's an interesting pairing. Because um, uh, I don't think that Diamondbacks are looking to, like slash it, and I think they're trying to compete still in the next like couple of years. Yeah, it seems like they're uh, trying to finesse it a little bit, like Seattle was, uh, or Seattle, I guess. <laughs> I guess Seattle went from going for it to not going for it, so maybe not like Seattle, but finesse it in a way to sort of continue competing, but also maybe do a, you know swapping out some older or shorter term assets for longer term right. ones. Um, the two other teams I want to touch on real quick uh, would be Atlanta and San Diego. So Atlanta obviously signed Josh Donaldson. Everyone seems interested in their Donaldson, Swanson, Albies, Freeman with Camargo in that Marvin Gonzalez role. They signed Brian McCann yep. to team with Flowers. So the whole infield seems kind of set. Obviously, NCRT and Acuna in the outfield. There's that one hole in the outfield spot, which uh, there was a report that they're going to um, put Austin Riley in the outfield. Uh, mm. At least work him out there in spring training. See how I think that works. he gets traded. I would also guess that. Uh, and then also they're still a little bit unsettled on the pitching side. Um, where Vizcaino and Minter seem like the two best guys, and then it's you know pretty skeptical from there. I would describe as how I look at it. So I would guess they try to you know maybe sign a veteran uh, reliever, maybe trade for a higher level kind of closer type guy, and then the rotation is I think Fulte, Newcomb, Gaussman seem pretty safe to come back. I'd say Newcomb would be the one that would move there if they try to make a big trade and need to move one of those guys. And then I think Tehran is a guy that they'd probably like to move the contract. Uh, and then you've got, you know, Tukey and Freed and Soroka and Allard and Gohar and Wright and all those guys, Anderson, that may not be opening day guys for them, but could reasonably be in the rotation. So yeah. I would guess that they're going to go for a free agent outfielder and then make a trade for a high level pitcher of some sort and then sign a free agent or two, probably relief. And then maybe like an Anibal Sanchez, like, you know, minor league deal type to fill in the rotation. Um, 
Did you have any different feelings on them? Because they're, they're just another team, I guess, that's in flux along with everybody in the NL East other than the Marlins just for like how this will exactly play out and how many long-term assets they turn into short-term or how much money they spend. I guess as far as the outfield hole is concerned, I wonder um, – I mean they've already kind of pushed Pache to double-A. I don't necessarily think pushing him to the big leagues pretty quickly would completely destroy his offensive development – um, it's risky in that regard, I suppose, but he can play big league defense in center field right now. Like he's incredible. Um, and just the idea of that, uh, moving in Ciarte to a corner where he's amazing. Uh, you essentially have three good defensive center fielders in your outfield. Um, although I probably, Acuna is more like fringe average in center, but, um, but yeah, it's like three, it's three center fielders in your outfield. Um, and then you can focus that money elsewhere. But, um, but yeah, I think that they're going to have to consolidate pitching somehow, and I agree that I think if they, if you said, okay, give us one of any of these near-ready pitchers that you have or guys that are already on the big big league roster, the Braves would first say, here, take uh, Tehran. Um, but I think that teams that they're dealing with are going to leverage all that depth into somebody that they want a little more than that, whether that's Kyle Wright or... Um, Ian Anderson or whoever, like those are the guys that if I'm on the other end of the phone, I'm asking for. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, they're competitive. They're, they certainly are moving like a team that plans on contending next year. So I would expect them to try to patch all the holes that you described because they do exist. Uh, and then as far as San Diego goes, you know, they signed Garrett Richards for 2020. Um, he's got some of the best stuff in baseball and just hasn't been healthy. And so it seems like that's, you know, if you're looking – Whatever the Padres are going to do is probably with an eye on competing uh, seriously in 2020. Yeah, and it yeah because it, it would seem like 2020 when Tatis is up and Urias is there. Um, I guess you pencil in some of the pitching. Yeah, I guess you pencil in Myers and Hosmer, and then yeah, like the, presumably some combination of you know Mackenzie Gore and Morejon and Paddock and Patino, and these guys are either there or close to there. You've yeah. got Lucchese already. and um, They've got depth with Quantrill and Logan Allen and Lauer, Jacob Nix. Yeah, they've got like all these guys. They have so many. They have enough pitching that, that they're going to have a homegrown rotation based on what they have now. Like, I mean, there's I mean just it's similar, to what, it's similar to what the Braves have where there's just so many guys you can't quite sort them out. You just don't have that um, that like established big league guy at the top, which I guess you could argue depending on what time of year you don't, the Braves don't either. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know if that matters. Yeah, they all the, the the Padres also similarly seem to be sort of set in the infield. Uh, I guess if you say sort of you know Myers, Tatis, Urias, and Hosmer, that seems like unless they decide they want to trade one of those guys and move some assets around, that those guys will be set there for a little while, and then Mejia will probably get an extended look at the plate uh, uh, behind the plate, uh, and then the outfield is like a little unsettled. I mean, I would I would think Margot is probably the most secure of those guys, but uh, I'm not sure Fran Mill and Hunter Renfro are like definitely going to be playing every day in the outfield for them three years from now. Yeah, uh, yes, I agree with that. Yeah, Franchi, I do think we'll see more of Franchi next year. Uh, Fran Mil Reyes tore his meniscus in uh, the Dominican Winter League this week. Oh. Um, so, yeah, you're talking about a really big-bodied guy who now has like a knee ligament issue that he's having surgery for. So that's not great. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I do think like Renfro is someone who uh, is, is good, but um, we've seen – that sort of thing before it's, it's Mark a little Trumbo. too Jeffrey it's, and Corey. Yeah. It's like that type of skill set and it's, it's pretty volatile. And then once 
the physical decline starts for a player like that, like it just go everything kind of goes away. And I would also uh, say that their their core right now, like I think they're probably about where the Braves were a year ago, where there's not a guy you project for three or four wins right now. But a year from now, there might be three of those guys. If like you know, yeah. if Tatis blows up and comes up and goes nuts and does like a Glaber Torres impression, you're like, oh, okay, there's one of the guys. And you know, I think we both think Urias could be one of those guys. Um, and if any one of these, you know, if Paddock comes up and shops, like he could be one of those guys too. So I think you're basically waiting for that core of you know two and a half to five win um, homegrown young guys that you can build around. I think they're just basically waiting to move some chips in when that happens, which could be next. I mean, it could be the middle of next year where that happens. Uh, I think given with them picking Richards, I think they're thinking more reasonably. It's probably in 2020 when uh, those guys are up and have established a little bit and you can kind of expect something out of them. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they started adding, like started moving prospects already this off season. Um, we already saw they had, this team is rebuilding, but has a 40 man crunch on its hands. You know what I mean? Like it's pretty, yeah, it's rare. Uh, there's just so much talent here that I do think it wouldn't surprise me if they looked at next year the the players that they needed to add uh, to the forty man next year, uh, and we're just like you know Josh Naylor just isn't quite going to fit. Like he's someone who should be at the top of our list to move. Like that type of yeah. thing. Um, when you need a sweetener to get the the big league piece you want, that's the guy that gets tossed right. in. Because I mean, we're also seeing a similar. I mean, obviously the Yankees have gone through that uh, the last few years, and it looks like Tampa Bay is walking into that now. Another interesting team that has been rumored to possibly be packaging three or four sort of big league ready fifty ish assets to go get like a center guard or a Goldschmidt or something like that. Because they're in that unique spot where they can trade for you know one to three years, basically the arb years of a controlled guy, and afford him like a you know star type. But they can't sign him as a free agent. And it's probably not smart to sign those kinds of guys as free agents. But they have so many assets now that they could probably, you know, package together three or four of them and get a couple like short term assets, like, you know, multiple sort of Marcelo Zuna, Goldschmidt um, type of guys. But then who do you actually play? And then if that guy gets hurt, then you just like, you know, $50 right. million flew out the window. So I think they're being yeah. very deliberate, kind of figuring out the spot where they want to do it. And they've been very conscious of uh, value in the past. So I think they also would like to get, you know, the right end of the deal. Uh, in the short term, and then obviously that gives you a better chance of getting it in the long term. So our next topic would be going through some of the, uh, I don't know, gradations, undulations, interesting parts of our NL Central list, which uh, I guess four of them are done now, and uh, we're pretty close on the Cubs. So yeah, why, why don't you walk us through some of these lists and some of the interesting guys? Okay, yeah, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> There are no interesting players. Next topic. Well, no, the guys who – I guess it's interesting to talk about some of the sleepers and uh, players who are harder to nail down and maybe some guys who we can have a broader discussion about based on what we think they are and why we have them slotted where we do. I think the first one we did was the Cardinals list. This organization has like a lot of big right-right power-hitting guys with no position. Like There are a lot of them. Luke and Baker and – um, Malcolm Nunez, who destroyed the DSL, but is ultimately like very probably a first baseman uh, and much more physically mature than all the other DSL kids. So, um, and Montero with a first name to be named later, right? Ellie Huris Montero. Um, so, so yeah, like this is what this organization has a bunch of. Um, Seems like a lot someone, of like light hitting generic middle infielders that turn into something, and a lot of corner right, guys. They have, 
Right, they have the 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 baseball instinct and feel like bat to ball up the middle guys, uh, and then on the corners it's just huge bodies with power, uh, and it's mostly that throughout the entire system. And like once in a while, those guys turn into Jose Martinez, um, and then every once in a while you get like a Matt Carpenter or um, uh, you know Colton Wong type of guy, and they just have such a such a huge uh, contingent of these guys that I just think the stream is going to be pretty consistent um yeah and they have and a then, i think an, i'm not sure we can quantify this we'll probably try at some point in the future um a, an ability to turn unheralded guys into good players which i guess san francisco had for a stretch i'd say st louis is probably even better at it yeah i agree with that um i think a it's lot just of sort of like hit tool fastball command seem like that. seem like what it's like tied to yeah. basically yeah they seem it, it seems clear that it's an org that likes college performers it's not that they shy away from high schoolers but um that college performance carries more weight for the Cardinals than it does uh, other orcs. They're on the high end of teams that care about that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, like I think, uh, I think things are going. This is a healthy farm system. Like this is a it's a forty player list um, with a lot of interesting guys who play uh, up the middle and are like close. And we talked about that. There's a lot of up um, like upper level depth in, in the outfield. The Cardinals didn't have someone scouting uh, here in Arizona until this year, uh, and they've already added pieces from Arizona. Jan Torres, the he's ranked sixth on the list, so uh, that's an. I thought that org is pretty interesting. And I would say um, Gorman and Carlson would be two of the sort of higher sure. higher level as far as ranked ranked higher guys that have a chance to move up if they just like keep doing what we think they're going to do. I, Pittsburgh. I guess the interesting guys on Pittsburgh for next year as far as big leagues go is uh, Pablo Reyes, who like had an incredible September up with the big league club and has been very good in the Dominican this winter. Um, someone who had a swing change that's not really like your typical, hey, I'm lifting the ball now, swing change. Uh, his swing got noisier and more active and like kind of violent, but this has always been like a bat-to-ball, uh, strike zone awareness guy who has – not really hit for a lot of power, but has good peripherals. Carson has been interested in him um, in the past. Is that a good thing? Now, yeah, it's a good thing. Um, like it's no, like he's Carson's type of has been Carson's type of guy, um, and now he's got like a violent Bobachet type swing, and suddenly there's some pop here, but without having sacrificed a whole lot of the other stuff that made him good. Um, so he's kind of an interesting big league sleeper for next year. I'd say. Then, like, two... Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I was gonna say the two interesting uh, guys that I think uh, I'm just trying to identify. Like I feel, I feel like I'm always asked. Like I, mean, I imagine you are too. Like, oh, who are the guys that could really move up next year? And it's just sort of like, all right, sure, like, yeah. If we thought they were gonna move up, we just move them up now. But I think Jared Oliva and Tanaj Thomas would be the, the two guys that sort of have some tools and have some performance. And if you give them a little more performance, they're gonna move up. And it's they're like kind of on that trajectory. They're at 40 pluses right now. I could see them along with you know Gorman and Dylan Carlson with the Cardinals being the guys where oh if they just keep doing what we think they're going to do they're probably going to move up because you just were looking for a little more performance out of it but like all the pieces are there. I'm going to take Cody Bolton as that type for next year. Um, he's only pointing he had a shoulder issue in 2018. It's not a great delivery but it's much better now than it was uh, when he was in high school and his stuff has really popped. Um, he's like sitting 90-94 with an above average slider and he had. He was really performing over nine starts before he got hurt. Um, so, uh, you know, there's obviously injury risk here now, and it's not a great delivery, but the stuff is new. Um, and I'm interested to see what he does next year. I think he could 
slide way up the list. And then O'Neill Cruz on this list is like the guy who like just go read the list. Um, He's probably the guy out insane. of the out of the five lists we've done, or four lists we've done so far, where people are just like sending me like uh, like just uh, texts or. Uh, tweets out of the blue like hey i read that report are you guys for real is that really what he's like <laughs> like that sounds insane i'm like yeah it does sound insane uh yeah it's crazy um which is funny that travis raggerty gets like over overshadowed as like an upside guy when he basically came out of nowhere as a 60 raw 65 runner with a 60 arm that plays center field and put up numbers for team usa and he's like oh yeah yeah he's not the highest upside guy though the brewers list which i kind of ran point on uh the guy who I really shuttled way up the list late is Eduardo Garcia, the 16-year-old Venezuelan shortstop who got um, 1.1 million this year. Uh, he came to Instructional League in the fall and looked really good. Um, potential plus defender at short. He's like huge 6-2 frame. Um, and yeah, he's he looked really good. And then just everybody else in the system that I moved him ahead of, I guess not everybody else, but a bunch of them just, you know, there are weird issues with like Trent Grisham and Lucas Ursay who hasn't performed. Um, and, uh, you know, like Marcos Diplon hasn't performed and Trey Supak has limited stuff. And so like, you know, you go through the middle of the Brewers list and it's a lot of guys who are sort of intersecting. Some of them are trending up, um, and the, and the others are trending down, like in the top section of the, the 40 future value tier on the, on the Brewers list. Um, and they've got a 17-year-old Chinese righty named Lun Zhao, who's yeah, got an incredible curveball. Every, every team's got one of those. Yeah. Um, saw this guy during Instructional League. They thought enough of him to send him to the Pioneer League for a little bit during the summer, uh, despite the fact that he's just barely 17. Uh, he froze Franchi Cordero with a curveball uh, during Instructional League. I've got um, video of that up on the site if you guys want to check that out. Um but yeah, they just have a bunch of weird pitchers um, who can really spin it or have funky arm slots or are really short or really tall uh, and have weird uh, release points. So yeah, it's this is an organization that I think the shape of the way they do stuff is changing pretty quickly. Um, and I think it's kind of evident on uh, the list if you start like looking at the bodies and the deliveries and stuff and the skill sets. Like Trent Grisham has a weird skill set. Uh, Troy Stokes has a weird skill set. Um, and I think it's really fascinating, some of their guys. But um, I don't know. The system – you were talking earlier about the power rebuilds. And I think my first reaction when it's like, hey, who rebuilt really quickly and aggressively and turned things around in an extreme way in like two to three years? And I thought of the Brewers. Um, this is kind of the, the example now, yeah. Right. But then I looked at the 40-man and it's like uh, – I don't know. Like not many of the guys that they traded for during that rebuild are actually around. <laughs> It's yeah. like Hater, who is it? Like Domingo um, Santana. Yeah, Domingo Santana, who you could argue. Um, I think he's a role player know, at this point. Right, he's he's a role player, uh, but like they drafted Corbin Burns. I guess Freddie Peralta was part of that, but he wasn't like one of the heralded guys. I mean, if their system, um, if you take out the last three first round, I mean, it's four first round picks, but the last three years were the first round picks. It's like really generic. Like it looks pretty close to what Seattle's look like before all these trades. Yeah. So you could you could uh, argue there's been some I guess some some herald. I mean, I, I was pointing out when we were going through this list that there's like a lot of like second, third, and fourth round high school pitchers that haven't really done a whole lot. Yeah, like Medeiros didn't do anything. They traded him. I mean, they really have traded a lot of people away. They they traded Harrison and 
Brinson, Brinson was part of the rebuild, right? Like he was the Lou Croy deal. They added Luis Ortiz and Luis Brinson. They have s- s- uh, since flipped those guys along with others for like Yelich and other big leaguers. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised um, if this is what the Indian system looks like because this is what it looks like when a team is like middle to small market is stretching their payroll constraints and so they have to trade prospects to like prop the team up. And so eventually, you you know, you keep like your top two or three guys because they're going to be big parts of it. But then that like 45 and 40 gets like thinned out pretty fast. and You need to be able to replenish it, which I guess you could say the Yankees have been there, too. Like that, that's kind of like there's 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 a shape of of systems when you look at the future values. And this is sort of contending team that's using the system to make the team better because they don't have a, a ton of money. Yeah, I guess we'll see. I don't know. I'm disappointed in the way some of these hitters haven't developed. Uh Especially Ursag and Grisham. I had a quick uh, Eduardo Garcia note. Also, he was the guy that when I was at the um, the MLB showcase in February of all the you know July two guys, it was I don't know fifteen of the top twenty bonus types, um, and I had basically never seen any of these players before. Like I was aware of a couple of them, and I was sitting next to an international cross checker, and he was like, "All right, so after like one team finishes hitting, he's like, all right, what order you have these guys in?" And I kind of showed him my list, and he was like, uh, "One guy I don't agree with is Garcia. You have him a little too high." And I was like, "Oh, well, like what's your what's your feel on him?" Because obviously you can get these guys on really good or really bad days, so I don't really know the context on a lot of them. And he was like, ah, he just doesn't do a lot for me. Like, you know, guys are saying he's going to get about a million. I don't think he had a deal at that point. And he's like, I just don't think he's that good of a player. And I was like, oh, well, I'll stick with that. Like, you know, it's limited look, but I got, you know, these notes, you know, this seems like it's 50s and knows how to play across the board. And then uh, you'd, you'd moved him up a lot. And I was looking through the list and I texted that guy. I said, hey, we got Garcia stuff pretty good on that list. He goes, yeah, he was really good at instructs. I heard the same thing. I guess I was just a little off on that one. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, not very many times am I going to, at least in short term, come out of ahead of a guy that had seen that player like five times. And I saw him basically take BP and infield. And I was like, I like that guy. Um, so I'll, hopefully that will keep going so I can uh, keep that win in my hat. <laughs> I mean, yeah, ultimately being aggressive with someone like that, we still just have a 40 future value on the guy where we have a lot of Which I think he was a 40 like, like pre-July 2 also. It wasn't like he, he might have been, yeah. He would just put him at the top of that tier. Yeah, it's just like here's a guy in the 40 future value tier of this organization who has a chance to like be a do-everything shortstop. Um, and yes, he's a 16-year-old who's years away and all sorts of stuff needs to develop or could go wrong in the interim, um, which is why even though we're excited about him as a, as a prospect, he's a 40 future value. But the fact that we're excited about him is also why he ranks eighth in the system. Um, so like it's – I don't know. I think the it's just one of those things where it's like it's helpful to explain how we're doing this because there are people who might look at this and be like, well, you have a 40 on him so you don't you don't think a whole lot of Eduardo Garcia. But um, we're just trying to capture the risk part of the profile and like the time value of everyone's profile and this one number too. And that's uh, also, I think a, a way for us to tip when there's a, a bunch of forties and the guy that's 16 is the one at the top of the forties. It's like, Oh, this right, is, yeah, this yeah, is that guy that you can kind of look to move up. Once we get a little yeah. more performance, we just can't put him much higher because he hasn't really done anything yet. Uh, and then the reds list, I don't know. Nick Senzel is at the very top of this thing because he's really good. Uh, <laughs> but he had a year of, really bizarre injuries that I don't really know how to, if it's possible to quantify them. You had vertigo last August. Um, and then it popped up again in May and he missed a month and then he had a fractured finger. Then he had an uh, alien jump out of his chest and then turn into yeah, a like alien. One thing after another, then he had bone spurs that became really sore during the fall and he was shelved and had surgery and missed the fall league. Um, so he did not like, he was, he played second base for the first time in 2018. And then in the fall, it was, uh, actually you're going to go learn how to play the outfield. And he played, I don't know, like two games. Um, 
So if this guy has not played the outfield. Billy Hamilton is gone. Uh, They're full the up on the ba- infield and the corners. Yeah, like they've basically said this guy is a candidate to play center field, and he's never done it. So I'm sure he's doing it this offseason. Even if you've had – it was his left elbow that had the uh, the surgery, so it's not like his throwing arm. So he could – I'm sure he's like a go right now. Like are you worried um, that he's like injury prone going forward or these things seem like freak I don't, enough? No, they just seem like freak things. Yeah, but it's just so many things. And I don't know what to do about the vertigo thing. <laughs> not a lot of precedent for it. It's like the Kaz Matsui anal fissure. You're just like, you know, we're going to throw this one right. away and not think about yeah, it Yeah, not anymore. sure what to do about that. Yeah. Um, so, but he's interesting, though, that he is a guy that fits best at third base, and then Suarez, arguably their best asset in the whole organization, also fits at third base. And because Suarez is there first, and Senzel has, I guess, a little more of an ability to play other positions and obviously hasn't gotten there first, that, like, Senzel could be the rare, like, top ten overall prospect that gets called up at one position and then once, you know, if they trade Scooter Gannett or, or whatever, then moves to another right. position. And then if for whatever Suarez isn't there, he'll probably move again to another position. Like, And that's not usually how you handle that level of prospect, but it's just kind of a weird thing that they're – you could argue like maybe they're three of their top like five assets uh, hitting-wise in the whole organization are all third-base only kind of guys that you have to kind of squint to put them somewhere else with uh, Senzel, India, and Suarez, which is, you know, unfortunate. But that's why you just sort of take best available and you just kind of figure it out later. Yeah, I guess there's not a whole lot of precedent for that being done with a top 10 or 15 prospect where he's essentially just sort of moving around to wherever he's needed instead of clearing uh, a space. Because using but, him in a near everyday role as a Marwin Gonzalez type isn't a bad thing for a player. No, definitely not. It's not great for a guy that's coming up that is in like the middle of trying different positions and missed a whole year and had a bunch of freak injuries. Like You probably don't want to throw this on top of it, but you don't really have a choice. Is there a way to identify players who are candidates – for this sort of thing, like, hey, I think player X will take to uh, us playing him at multiple defensive positions because X, like, it would just seem it's a baseball instincts feel yeah. sort of ethereal thing, um, and well, not necessarily something that you that's easy to see. And there's guys that um, are sort of squatty infielders that people say, oh, he could catch, and then oftentimes it's either oh, he's not very good at catching, his arm strength doesn't play there, he doesn't want to do it. It's like 90% of the time that's what the answer is. Yeah. Um, like I know the... doesn't want to do it is definitely a catcher conversion barrier. Yeah. No, there are... I don't want to embarrass the kids, but there there is a huge 2020 draft prospect that came up as a catcher um, that I was told, oh, I was like, oh, can he catch? I didn't know about this. They're like, oh yeah, he doesn't want to. And I was like, oh, okay. And there's a 2019 draft prospect that's a college player right now that everybody, like his whole career said, oh, this guy can probably catch. Uh, and he doesn't want to. And there was a guy that was a first-round pick out of high school that is now in the big leagues that everyone thought, oh, eventually we could convert this guy to catching. And it turns out he doesn't want to. And those don't get publicized. Uh, Michael Chavis, when he was in high school, uh, scouts wanted to try him behind the plate uh, at East Coast Pro. Yeah. And they tried it, and they're just like, ah, it's not quite as good. Okay, moving on. <laughs> like, right. And he wanted to do it. He was just, he was just like, ah, it's probably not going to work. Right. Abraham Toro with Houston, too. They tried it, uh, and it just wasn't very good. And so he's back at third base. And then you have versions like Schwarber, Will Myers, where maybe it would have worked, but it turns out we're, we're not going to find out, or Bryce Harper. Right, yeah, because the bat's too valuable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, so real quick, finishing up the Reds, that's the last uh, list oh, okay. published at this point. Who, who would be your sort of pick-to-click or guy that if you had to guess would be at a higher ranking like in the middle of next year? Who would it be? Uh, I think it's going to take like five more years, but Edwin Yan is so insane. Uh, five. He's like six five, six six, six seven. He's somewhere up there. He stands next to uh, six foot three Mario Batista on the the Goodyear backfields. He towers over him. So it's just one of those guys where it's like, hey, maybe when this guy's twenty five and has actual control over his limbs, 
all this power that he's grown into will start playing. Um, and like that's what this guy looks like at 20 years old. Um, and then Mario Batista, who I just mentioned, is also like 21, really performed in the Pioneer League. Uh, he does have back control. He does have power. He can really run. It's just a weird, ugly swing um, that just needs to be polished out. And I think he could really rock it up the list if that happens. It seems like there's just so much feel there. I, I think at some point it will. But also, like, a 21-year-old in the Pioneer League is, like, a college player dominating there. So it's really not that big of a deal. Um, but he, he, is, he is also tooled up. It just doesn't always play because the swing is kind of bizarre. Yeah, I don't have a real strong one here. I would say uh, Josiah Gray would be a candidate that if he comes out and continues to perform, that he'll probably be a 45, and he's a 40-plus right now. Um I am intrigued by Brent Spillane, but I'm not sure he's a guy that I'm going to expect to like shoot up the board just because he's going to strike out a lot. So it's going to be yeah. tough to estimate him highly uh, when he's going to be sort of overage corner guy. Um, Danny Lantico is a guy that you were on that I'm interested in, and then I would say uh, I'd say the most likely move would be Cash yeah. Case, who I think his nickname should just be Wallet. Um, that he's just been injured a bunch. He had, I believe, it was hip surgery and is sort of a hit first, might be able to play second base, has enough power, and just hasn't really been on the field very much. Um, but there yeah. were some very positive reviews as an amateur that this guy can hit, and you'll just figure out where he goes later. And we have him as 35-plus because he hasn't really played, and it's not an enormous upside, but, I mean, this could be a you know a two-and-a-half-win guy. Like there's, still, there's enough upside that if sort of everything goes the way it's expected, it's just not much has gone his way so far. It's two years in a row that Cincinnati has kind of kept a million dollars laying around into like the third and fourth rounds and just scooped up a guy that they liked and you could see why they liked him but was just sort of um, just couldn't find cracks. a home up to that point. Yeah, yeah. slip through the cracks is a great way to put it. Like it was Siani this year uh, where he just kind of slid back behind a lot of the other prep outfielders because he wasn't as projectable and he was older and he didn't hit for power against – uh, pitching in Philly, which is not good. Uh, he really was just sort of spraying the ball the opposite way all spring, and he kind of moved out of that tier. And I think he's also a guy that had like a high enough number that it's just sort of like, oh, these five teams yeah. could pay him, and then all of a sudden they pick somebody else and nobody was left. Yeah, and Cash Case is just like that. Yeah, it was just, hey, this guy has power and we think he can hit, but we haven't seen him do a whole lot defensively because he has had injuries and has had this like surgery that has limited him, and uh, I agree with you. Yeah, Cash Case is one of the better baseball names. Um, I want to go back and do uh, like superimpose his face into No Country for Old Men, and instead of Josh Brolin running around with a briefcase of money, it'll just be like a picture of Cash Case. <laughs> <laughs> and Javier Bardem is chasing him all over. And I and I would like Cash for, Case. <laughs> I would like to own an Italian restaurant um, where our our our, <laughs> our lead meal is Stephen Piscotti and meatballs. So we both we both have our dreams. Uh, and I like to re- remix Chain of Fools with Yu Chen Chang. Uh, all right, so that'll do it for segment two. And for segment three, we're going to talk about some changes to our draft rankings that will be coming out, I guess, a little bit after this is released. Um, but uh, I guess we were waiting for... There had been some fall events. We wanted to update some things just one last time before the um, winter slash preseason and the last event was the high school team, uh, high school team USA, uh, playing an event, which I believe they just finished last night, um, Sunday night, I want to say. So everything's sort of done now. I think all the colleges have wound down, all that sort of thing. So there's, I don't know, about a dozen or so players that will probably move around a little bit. Nothing, nothing too drastic. Um, but I would say from the, the team USA, uh, high school team, 
just looking at the top of the list here, uh, number two, C.J. Abrams, number four, Corbin Carroll, number seven, Riley Green, number eight, Bobby Witt Jr. were all on the team and all performed well. Uh, any of those guys make any big moves for you, Eric? Um, I don't know. I, th- I don't think big moves. I think we might shuffle some of them around a little bit. Riley Green continued to hit throughout the the rest of the like the late summer stuff um, and into the fall. And now with Team USA, like he just continues to hit. Um, and really, what you're what you're getting with Green is just someone who you have confidence in a bat. This is sort of like last year's uh, like Jared Kelnick. Yep. Like essentially, this is a college bat sort of probability. Um, but uh, the tools are not super crazy. And he like has a pretty maxed out body and stuff, but like there he can really hit. Um, and then Bobby Witt, we have him ninth, and we were kind of concerned over the summer about the hit tool, and he has also done nothing but uh, hit all throughout the rest of the year. Um, both those guys are pushing nineteen on draft day, um, so. You know, if if we think if we're confident in one hitting and not the other, um, is it really that big of a difference? And like you know, Witt's got much more defensive value. He's a plus defensive shortstop. So, you know, if if we're feeling a little bit better about Witt's bat, then he should probably slide up ahead of Riley Green. Um, and maybe C.J. Abrams gets scaled back a little bit too. Is pretty aggressive for someone who we have to really project on the power coming. Although we both, I think you and I both feel pretty comfortable. Uh, that there will be more power there at some point. I just don't know exactly how much it's going to be. Yeah, I, I think know, this do you, is, how do they line up for you? I think this is one of those points where the future value tiers are very useful because I don't think anybody has anyone other than Adley Rutschman, the catcher from Oregon State, at the top guy, and we have him on a tier of his own. And then we basically just talked through the 50s that we have ranks 2 through 8, and then there's a couple more after that that are college guys, so obviously they weren't relevant for, right. for this discussion. But you could put those guys in almost any order. And the the three sort of bottom ones we have, Shea Langoliers, catcher from Baylor, Greg Jones, shortstop at UNC Wilmington, and Carter Stewart, the unsigned eighth overall pick from last year. Um, that obviously there appeared to be some sort of dispute about medicals, so we're kind of curious to see how he comes out of the shoot, if he's the same guy or if he's different. Um, those three probably seem like the bottom of this tier. And you could you know argue Graham Stenson or Spencer Jones or Matthew Lugo, some, a couple other guys could sneak in there. So it seems like there is that two through um, eight or nine, depending on if you want to throw Michael Toglia in there, where you could put those guys in almost any order, and I could see any scenario where any of them end up being sort of second, you know, by April first or you know mid March or right. whatever. Um, so I think that there, there's there's enough new information from the last time we did this to shuffle it a little bit, um, and it sounds like the sort of I wouldn't say the industry at large, but I would say if you were to ask um, scouts like where they had Bobby Witt Jr., there would probably be of this this two to eight group. I think he's probably the guy that is number one on the most lists just because the upside is so high. And if you caught him at a good event, then you don't really have any questions. And you've probably seen him in past uh, events and past years as an underclassman, which was true of Kalenic and some of these other sort of uh, advanced, um, you know, top 10 overall high school bat types. Um, so I think he's the guy that we were probably a little lower than some other people on because we had the questions on the bat, and he's slowly addressed those in just the, in the fall events, which I guess would be Jupiter and Team USA. Um, so yeah, I would say he's moved up some, and you like like I said, you could argue that two through eight or nine in almost any order, and I think they'll probably shuffle themselves a couple times. So I don't think the specific order today is that big of a deal because then they're going to shuffle again before draft day, if not you know a couple more times. Sure, yeah, I agree. 
Um, I still think, like, I still like this class despite its uh, clear limitations. I don't know. Has anybody, we haven't really talked about the draft uh, on the podcast for a long time now. Has anyone, college pitching-wise, like, this is what the last, we updated this list, we thought was like, this is the worst part of the draft next year. It's There's no college pitching. Well, there's um, depth. There's just so not, who's there's not the high-end, like, top 50 eh. pick guy. Yeah, but there's, like, very, like, none. Like, it's it's not just, like, this little thing. Like, there really isn't, other than Stinson, who might just be a reliever. And I, I think it'll think be super is, interesting yeah. to see where, like, at what point in the draft would a team just be like, um, yeah, this guy will be in our bullpen in two weeks. Uh, like, we need a lefty like this. This guy's stuff is good enough to get big leaguers out. Like, let's just, why he should just be here. Yeah, typically, um, you know, in like an average draft, it feels like right around 15 or 20, teams start thinking about that kind of stuff. So if he, no, we, have does. A, we have him a little higher than that just because there's a chance he might turn into a starter this spring, but I, I don't think he will, but I guess there's a chance, so we'll wait and see. And then obviously we talk about Carter Stewart, who there's a big question about like how he's going to come out this year. And I guess sure. we haven't even announced what school he's going to be at. And we have yeah. a lot of reason to believe it'll be a junior college in Florida. Um. Yeah, with Stinson, the Stinson thing and the the entire principle of uh, like rushing someone to the big leagues seems like a possibility for two or three guys every year. Uh, like last year, I guess if if you ask me who is best positioned to get big league outs right now, I would say like Nick Sandlin at Southern Miss, um, the closer at TCU, Durbin Feltman. Uh, yeah, Feltman, and like that's probably it and that seems to be we have a couple of guys every year where we're like yeah like if we had needed someone from this draft class to be in the big leagues tomorrow these are the handful of guys um stinson is like the best of that type of guy uh yeah. that i can remember so maybe it'll actually happen with this guy but it and never actually happens with any of the other the other any other guys in previous drafts it just and, doesn't actually happen and he's also i mean we talked about on the free agent uh, portion i guess an episode or two ago about how garrett richards was a unique guy in that every scout loves, you know, goes gaga for the stuff. And then he's also a spin rate guy and also gets strikeouts. So it's like, no matter what, if you're more of a stats guy or a track man guy or like a pitching development, like, you know, pitching coach kind of guy, or you're just a straight up scout, like they all love that guy. And I think Stinson, we, I think he's been over, I want to say 3000. If not, he's been very close to RPMs on his breaking ball. And he's like a, a big lefty uh, that was, you know, sort of seen going back to high school. Has been throwing around 90, 92, 93, like his whole, you know, last four years or so. And just sort of recently has been getting up to sevens and eights. Um, and could move quickly and be in the big leagues or be a power starter or be a multi-inning reliever. Like he seems uniquely suited to be like on everyone's radar um, at like every pick. Like I, it would not surprise me at all if he's one of those guys when we're doing mock drafts and we're like, all right, he could be underslotted eight or nine or there's a little interest at 10. And then yeah. about 11, 12, 13, they're really on him. 14, 15, 16, think he might not get there. And then 17, 18, 19, 20, really would like to get him. Like I've, it wouldn't surprise me at all if it plays out like that, which with high school pitching, it never works out like that. Yeah. What are we at now? We have six months until the draft. Um, yeah. yeah. So... <laughs> Yeah, they're not going to play for a little while. So we've got about you know four months of actual stuff going on. Uh, so Junior is- college ball starts in January, so yeah, there's just a dead period now of like forty five, fifty days before anything starts happening again. There might be like a winter workout here or there, but the names that we've talked about on this show and most of the names on the board aren't the type of, types of players who 
uh, end up at some of these like indoor workouts in the winter in the Northeast and stuff. Yeah, there's usually uh, like, like, at like the, the Pocono the, Dome and stuff. Yeah, there's like that PBR uh, Super Sixty thing. There's almost always right, like, a, yep. a top two to three round guy or two that pop up there that are you know upper Midwest um, guys that emerged in the off season that worked out a lot and changed their bodies that typically went to one event and weren't aren't really on the radar. Um, I'm thinking like Joey Wentz is like a good example of that. He was seen as a swing and miss guy with power. And then at that event, they're like, oh, this guy might be a first round pitcher. Okay, we got a new guy. Um, Jack, Jack Neely, one of the guys you like, was a guy that, yep. that popped up there last year and I guess ended up going to University of Texas. Um, I'm flipping through our rankings here. We've, I've bolded some of the names of guys that we've moved around recently. Uh, the biggest one would be Tyler Dyson, the righty from Florida, who to give like a couple sentence explanation of his, um, his ups and downs, uh, got to school as like an athletic uh, righty that was like around 90, like sort of the typical guy that goes to the high-end colleges. Um, pitched him during his freshman year, was sort of like used in relief, would get up to fives and sixes, so the velo came a little bit. And then um, his sophomore year, I was getting texts from scouts that went in to see Singer and Kowar and all those guys uh, last year, uh, right before the season started, and they said, Dyson's the best prospect on this team, and it's not really that close. And I'm like, we have Singer number one on the board right now. Like, and you're saying this guy's clearly better than him? And they're like, oh yeah, not even close. And it was like, this guy's 6'4", 225, like three to six, touching an eight, plus breaking ball, flashes above average to plus changeup, commands average to above, he's athletic, you know, good delivery, good arm action. Like they were just going nuts. And I didn't get to see him last year, but apparently for the first month or so of the season, it continued that way, pitching on Sundays without a lot of scouts there. But every now and then you see some guys hanging around to see the hitters that would see him. And then a bunch of weird stuff happened. Like he basically, uh, depending on who you ask, like got the yips, velocity went down, and then they just shelved them. And uh, I think the – I want to say from the scouts that have talked to Florida, they said the explanation was he had some sort of soreness and lost his slot, and so they just wanted to you know get things back. Sorry, scouts jumping on the couch now. And they went to the Cape and was 88 to 92, and everyone's like, all right, he might get better if he's just this going forward. But it was like – you know, average stuff with like fringe command. And so they're like, all right, maybe he's just a third, fourth rounder. And that was just a, you know, crazy month or two. And then he came out in a fall practice against USF uh, in Lakeland, a sort of heavily scouted um, scrimmage and was basically right back to what he was when the scouts were going nuts almost a year ago, that it was, you know, up, up to six or seven plus breaking ball, like all the stuff you want from who would be, you know, presumably the top college starter in, in the league or in the draft. But the problem is, like, it, it's been so up and down, like, you can't really put him where he should be. Because if he basically didn't have those hiccups and was just been this guy for a year, like, I don't know, where would you put that guy? Like, he'd probably be right there with Carter Stewart. Like, he'd probably be, like, a low 50, like, in that sort of 2 to 12 tier we were talking about. Yeah. Um, and so, right now, we have, I guess we haven't finalized the rankings. We have him right around 20 to 25. I think we'll probably leave him there and just sort of see what happens during the season. But he's the guy that sort of jumped up and could change that conversation a little bit from the last time we had it about how there's no college pitching because because that guy could be the guy um he has been before but it, it's obviously not sort of set in stone like you'd like it to be right like who are some of the other guys do you think that now that things are shut down for a little while uh who are most likely to move drastically during the course of next spring like someone like anthony volpe would not be that guy it's just like yeah real steady right steady defensive shortstop there's bat to ball but not a lot of power, and that's really it. You're just sort of how much you think he hits is going to dictate where you have him on your board, and that's kind of it. But then you mentioned Dyson is one of those guys. Um, what about the multi-sport kids like Maurice Hampton and Jerry and Ely? Yeah, I would say those are two good examples where I think if you get 
consistent, slightly different inconsistent mechanics from Ely. He hit pretty well, but the you know I've probably said it multiple times. The swing's kind of funky, so you don't want to com- you don't want to completely buy in. But he's like getting results, and he's a really good athlete. Um, and then Hampton, obviously, if you just see that guy go ballistic, like everything, it's sort of Monte Harrison ish, if not yeah. more more athletic. It's like it's in that family. Um, I'm. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the names that have moved up. I'm trying to pick out guys that could move a lot from where we have them right now. So, like, Drew Mendoza would be an example. A real low-energy guy that's now you know gotten a little bigger, maybe sort of fringy at third base, but it's, like, maybe 70 raw power and hits just some moonshots. But, it, it, you know, if he approached, he strikes out a little too much. In high school, he looked like he might be one of those six-bat, six-power guys, and now it might be four-bat, seven raw power, you know, six power and might be a first baseman. Like there's a really wide variance on him. And yeah. scouts will give really different looks because they don't love sort of the um the body language. And so obviously if that picks up then the whole tone with him sort of changes. Miles Austin too. It's a lot of the kids where it's physical development um is a is a part of the profile. Yeah. Um and if that stuff comes in the next six months and it's happened before where over the winter some someone remakes their entire body. That's what Forrest Whitley did. Um, and they're a completely different prospect in the spring than they were the summer before. I, uh, uh, yeah. I promised I wouldn't uh, report these things. I'll tell them to you off the air. But I had a, a really, really good scout um, tell me two college guys that he wants to see convert to catching. And he's like, these guys have not caught before. I just think it might work. And it might be one of those things where they don't do it the entire spring. And then we just try it in a pre-draft workout and then take them a lot higher than you think we should. And we'll say, oh, he's going to catch for us. Um, so I'll, I'll be keeping my eye on that because there's always a couple of those guys where that conversation happens. Um, I think Nick is one of the guys is not Nick Quintana, but that's he's he's another guy where that, Ooh, that yeah. conversation has happened almost isn't. Sure. He's been a guy since like a sophomore in high school and guys have always been like, oh, he's like kind of right. a stocky infielder. What do you put yeah. behind the plate? He's had a catcherly build since he was a high school underclass for sure. Yeah, and, and I think um, because it hasn't happened yet, I get the impression that it, there's like not a willingness or it hasn't worked out well or, or whatever, or else we probably would have heard more about it. Uh, a guy that's on on the, on the rise in our rankings, I don't think he was even mentioned in the last one, and I have him in the 40s right now, is Tyler Callahan. Uh, he mentioned on an earlier podcast that he looked uh, very yeah. different and improved at the uh, Florida Diamond Club showcase. He also was on Team USA. And he's 19, he's left-handed, he's kind of got that, like, squatty, maxed-out frame, and, you know, could go the way of, say, Nolan Gorman, where he comes out in the spring, looks bigger, if he swings and misses, that guy could really slide, and he lost a bunch of weight, he looks better at third base, he's been catching a little bit, looks like there might be a real shot, and so now everyone is aware that that might work, so he won't, he wouldn't shock anybody if he ends up catching. Um, I'm not sure if he's going to do it this spring, I would surpri- be surprised if he does, um, but he's another guy that's moving up. I'm um, looking for other guys. That, do you have another guy that you think might be a big big mover in the spring or just like a high-variance guy? I don't think so. Um, I think some of the guys with the hit tool issues, I like, worry like Hunter about. Hunter Bishop would be an example of that. Yeah, although Hunter Bishop did uh, look better on the Cape than he did as a sophomore at Arizona State. Um, but he's got the kind of tools where if he puts up a huge right. season, like Jonathan India style, like he'll go in the first round. But I also wouldn't trust if a high school player did it. Like, let's say Reese Hines does it uh, and has a huge, like, Joe Adele-type spring. Um, how much will we really hop on knowing that it's come against weaker pitching than he faced the summer before? Like, that guy probably doesn't yeah. move that much even if he has a monster spring. In, in but it's his, a high-variance var- high profile, though. Yeah, in his defense, he'll be at IMG along with Brennan Malone, which you'd almost want to see them play in a scrimmage so they could face each other. Um, but they typically will play sort of Montverde and some of these really big powerhouse schools and, you know, go cross country. And, you know, those schools where, where they have, you know, multiple 90 plus arms, 
So he'll face, you know, much better than average high school pitching, um, maybe among the best pitching in the country. But yeah, the fact that I believe some some of the teams that keep track of this stuff said he hit like 190 with like three home runs over the summer, and everybody just remembers the three home runs and kind of, you know, pushes out of their mind. This is kind of what happened with Nander DeSatis. I believe he hit 190 over the summer, but everyone just sort of, you know, the scouts sort of forgot about it. Like, oh yeah, it looks the, looks apart. I saw him hit a couple doubles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they just sort of forget all the like, you know, bad ABs or... Uh, bad outcomes or whatever he had um and obviously that could be very unlucky we're talking about batting average it's you know maybe the rundown in the summer maybe they make some real changes like jeremiah jackson did um in the in the spring last year got um what was it glasses or contacts glasses. or something yeah. where he had some contact issues over the summer and then in the spring he looked different against worse pitching and everyone's like well is this for real and we're like no well there's an actual change it might actually be different it might not be but it might also be um a couple other guys that have moved up uh, and I guess we're also going to expand the rankings, but some guys that have uh, moved into into that territory, Jan Contreras, shortstop uh, from Puerto Rico, and a really good year for Puerto Rico. You've got Matthew Lugo and Contreras, uh, yes. both in the top couple rounds, and you've got Eric Rivera, who looked like he was like a big tool swing and miss guy, and then looked surprisingly good on the mound for one of uh, the yeah, first times. I, I really liked him on the mound uh, much more than I did as a corner outfield guy. He's just a super athletic lefty. He's like 88-92. Yeah. Um, the secondaries are below, but um, he's just an interesting developmental project. I got him for one inning at Diamond Club, and it was three pitches all average or better, and he threw strikes, and it looked pretty smooth, and I was like, oh, this is... Yeah. Like, he's the one of those guys where it's, like, the 60 and the BP, and you get real excited, and then it's just not very good at the plate, and I'm like, oh, this is much closer to, you know, being a finished product as a pitcher. So I have a feeling if he's... I don't know if he's into it or not, but, um, you know, we'll see if he ends up going there. Um, a couple of guys that are rising. Uh, Brett Batty is a very interesting case. Uh, he's going to be 19.6 on draft day. Yeah. Uh, so he's like even a little old amongst junior college freshmen. <laughs> um, but the, and like we had him very low because of that. Uh, but he continued hitting and he went to Jupiter and did, uh, continued to hit. It's big guy with yeah, power. power corner somewhere. Um, and you know, if he just continues to make contact, obviously the draft models aren't going to love that, but there's only so many guys that are big dudes with, you know, exit velos and power that hit, hit an event. So he'll, he'll go reasonably well. Um, Sammy Siani, um, the brother of Mike Siani, who I believe we talked about earlier in this podcast. Um, <laughs> he was at East Coast Pro, uh, hadn't been seen a whole lot, uh, was surprisingly good, and then apparently Jupiter was even better than that. And he was in that sort of like third round area, and now he might be in that sort of comp second round area. It's just like a uh, plus runner, center fielder, contact, like surprisingly similar to his brother, which, you know, I guess it's pretty strong bloodlines if they both come out as like surprisingly similar players. Yeah, and back to back years, I. Th- think sammy's got a little bit more physical projection than uh mike did a year ago so mm-hmm. um also a little bit more adept at like turning on the ball and doing some pull side damage and stuff so um yeah he's pretty good too and i'd say the uh, last guy that like made a, a jump is uh, we had nick lodolo at tcu down pretty low right. he was an unsigned comp rounder out of high school by the pirates and i think we had him i want to say 50s or 60s and we now have him up around the 20s or 30s uh, because I guess just the issue with him was in high school, it was projectable, big, lefty, like kind of fringe velocity, but everything was there. And the velocity still hadn't come. And then this um, this fall, I believe he was two to four in like a multi-inning appearance. So it looks like the velocity might be showing up. And so if that's the case, then the breaking ball is probably going to be a little bit better. And if the command's anywhere close to average, then that guy might you know sneak up where Tyler Dyson is in like the 20s or even teens if it continues going in that direction. Yeah, there's. Uh, I saw Lodolo in the spring. TCU TCU was here at uh, to play Grand Canyon, and then in LA to face like Vanderbilt and UCLA and USC. Um, and yeah, the velocity had not developed at all since high school. Um, it's four pitches, 
and I thought uh, that his changeup was the was the best of his secondary pitches, but uh, the curveball definitely was the thing in high school. And I agree, if he's throwing a little harder in the fall, then maybe the breaking ball has some more snap now. But he also had to develop a better changeup, like while it didn't. Um, so yeah, he's another one of the guys who, especially with a complete lack of college pitching, uh, I think is firmly in like the first round mix at this point, uh, just because he's going to be someone's type. And very under the radar guy to keep an eye on, uh, draft eligible sophomore Garrett Shonley, lefty at Cincinnati, uh, former hoops player, uh, 90 93 at times on shorter stents this fall, will flash three average or better pitchers, uh, 6 5 lefty, former quarterback. Uh, I talked to a couple scouts and they were like, Yeah, we're, I thought I was keeping this guy in my back pocket and I came to see him in the fall and there were like 30 scouts here. Like, it sounds like. Sounds like it's out that this guy's like a third rounder right now, and if he continues improving at all, he might be a first day guy that I didn't even know his name until about a month ago. And it sounds like some sort of national scout still may not know his name, but he'll he'll be a guy that um, keep an eye on, especially with Cincinnati being in a conference with a bunch of teams in the South with UCF and USF, uh, and I think Kennesaw is in that conference too, or no, maybe not. But anyway, will be more easy to see for us, or at least me, uh, than most sort of uh, upper Midwest types. I'll give you one of those types of guys too. Ready? All right, what do you got? Matthew Dyer was a transfer from oh, was it the, the University from of Oregon. Yeah, who tra- transferred from Oregon to Central Arizona, but then did not play at Central Arizona at all last year and transferred in the middle of the season uh, to U of A, where he did not play for the rest of the season. Uh, so he has been seen like by various different area scouts over the last couple of years or not seen at all because he wasn't playing. But it's like a plus-plus athletic uh, catcher on like the smaller, wispier uh, build side of things, like the uh, not quite as small as Garrett Stubbs, but that sort of lanky build. Gotcha. And it's just like plus plus athlete, plus plus arm, um, runs pretty well, um, and just like who knows what's going to happen with him offensively. He hasn't really hit in games for a couple of years now. So um, he's at Arizona. He's at Arizona, and the it's unclear like him and. Um, also, both the Arizona colleges have like catching log jams now because Lyle Lynn at Arizona State did not sign with Houston, but they have young Luke Lysenring who needs reps. Like this was the year he was supposed to start playing, um, and so that has to be reconciled. And then at U of A, they've got the freshman Austin Wells from um, Nevada, Nevada area high school, who did not catch as a senior in high school because of I think it was Tommy John, but it might have been yeah, a shoulder. I believe it was elbow. I saw him in the fall before that, and it was he wasn't catching then either. Yeah, so uh, he went to school because no one was sure if he could catch or not, and now he's at U of A with this other guy who it seems like might be a really special defensive catcher, and so it'll be interesting to see how those two things shake out in the spring. Yeah, good problem to have with uh, too many good catchers at D1 school. Yeah, too many. Yeah. Oh, one other guy that I'll bring up, um, because he's on the all-name team, Sanson Faltine III. Uh, we had him on the uh, sort of extra name to keep an eye on on the hitter side, and after the Team USA stuff, I was told, hey, he's a little better as a pitcher. Is like a low 90s, real loose, real projectable, um, came out easy. Might be a guy where he has a big velo spike in the spring. So him and Eric Rivera have been shifted from the wait-and-see hitters that might pitch some to uh, follow the velo pitchers that also could hit a little bit. All right, you got all anything right. else? I think we're good? No, I think we're good. All right, well, that'll be all for episode, I think this is eight of Ump, the untitled McDonough Hager Project. Uh, and to Jeff Passon's delight, we will keep that name for now. Uh, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week.
I'd say and then, like, go ahead. Go ahead. 